0: When I started the Parlay in All Blue podcast, I had aspirations to have meaningful conversations with people who were steeped in various dimensions of Black history and culture, not only in America, but across the globe. In my mind and on my written wish list, I hope to be able to speak to this week's guest about Dr. King and the civil rights movement. But... I really didn't think it would happen but let me say this look at God won't he do it this week's guest Taylor Branch MacArthur fellow Taylor Branch Pulitzer Prize winner Taylor Branch National Book Award winner Taylor Branch is our guest on the parlay in all blue if you've read his opus America and the King years the trilogy Parting the Waters, which is book one, book two, Pillar of Fire, and book three, At Canaan's Edge, you know that Taylor Branch is responsible for producing the most thorough and comprehensive view of Dr. King's work and the civil rights movement, period, full stop. If you haven't read these works, start today. And yes, it will take some time to digest it, to read it, It took him 24 years to prepare it, to write it, so it's gonna take some time. But this is foundational reading for all Americans. And it's satisfying reading because it's not just sort of history as sort of a, a textbook or a class. It's excellent writing and excellent storytelling. It's fundamental to understanding who we are as a country. So go get the book. Now, our conversation touches on many topics and significant contributors to the civil rights movement, but it just cracks the door open to the movement. But we're here to help. So start by listening, digesting, sharing, talking about this episode of the Parley in All Blue with Taylor Branch. And we are so happy to have him. And so after you've listened, Go and get the books. Go get them for yourself, your family, friends, and what have you. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Start here with the Parlay in All Blue. In this episode, this very special episode with Taylor Branch. Taylor Branch, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: So 35 years ago... The first volume of your Pulitzer Prize trilogy, America During the King Years, hit the shelves. And for those people who don't know, there's Parting the Waters, 1954 to 1963, Pillar of Fire, 1963 to 1965, and At Canaan's Edge, 1965 to 1968. In my estimation, there isn't anything that comes close to covering the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, nor the civil rights movement like it. And so I want to thank you for that. I remember when it hit the shelves, a friend of mine told me, said, you've got to get this book. And it was just parting the waters at that point. It covers the civil rights movement person by person, hour by hour. And you don't get lost in the detail. It's still like a story, and it and it's lived up to everything. So, what a task, and what a um, boy! You know, it's such it's such important material. To say it was a joy to read is kind of hard because you know it's such a heavy topic. But at the same time, as a reader, I really enjoyed it. I don't I don't know, you know, how you go through a lot of the some of the really meaty things that that are covered during it with, and call it joyful. But I I've always enjoyed reading it. In fact. My first reading of the trilogy was straight through and then maybe about a year or two ago I I listened to it on on tape. Now, it's nearly 3000 pages of writing, very detailed, what and and all good all very good writing at the same time. What made you want to take on this topic in this work?
1: Basically, in a word, my childhood. I grew up in Atlanta in a dedicated non-political family. My dad was a dry cleaner. We didn't pay much attention to anything in that respect. But I was in first grade the year of the Brown decision, and I graduated from college the spring that Dr. King was killed. And all through that, the period in between, or consistently, my hometown and the South in general was on its ear by this civil rights movement. And it raised such profound questions over time. It was relentless as to what was making these kids, because a lot of it was kids, you know, not much older than I was. And after a while, even younger than I was, you know, it was six-year-olds and eight-year-olds in Birmingham who really turned the tide on American history, which Americans today, it's too embarrassing to admit that. So we skip over it. But by that time, I was 16 and it profoundly affected me that these kids were marching into dogs and fire hoses in Birmingham, singing the same songs I sang in Sunday school. And where was this coming from? And um, I never got really uh, satisfactory answers. There were a lot of other things going on, too. I mean, in my high school, my high school was a private school that I went to on a football scholarship. But they said that uh, it was not segregated, It's just that the right black applicant had never yet applied. Hmm. And when you're a teenager testing out your sarcasm, you know BS when you hear it. And it went on consistently that the authority figures we were brought up to revere were really flummoxed uh, to the point of, of, of lying to us and to themselves about what was going on. And in many, many other ways over time, The movement, I was planning to be a doctor, but it displaced my interest in, um, I dropped all my medical pre-med courses the sophomore year in college, 1966, because I really wanted to know where this movement had come from. And everything I read about it, to me, was abstract. It was analyzing labels of what was militant and what was effective and what was radical, what was Christian, what was patriotic. They were using all these labels that, to me, didn't capture the humanity that was motivating the people who were creating the movement. So ultimately, I decided I would have to write it myself. Now, it's easy to say that. It took me 10 years to get enough experience to get a contract that would allow me to begin. And I had written books. All my books took one year, but this one I signed up for three years because I knew it was big, and it wound up taking 24 years. And I'm not sure I would, have, I would have done it had I known at the beginning, but I think I would have. I think I would have anyway. This was, to me, even though I was not a black person, I was an American, and the black people in the movement professed to represent the best in, uh, of America. And therefore, to me, it was my story, and I had no idea where it came from until I started getting involved in the research. And the research consistently enthralled me because I thought I had paid attention to what was going on by reading the news, but I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. And so that was what I try to capture always. I had a rule not to use labels. I didn't use racist, militant, you know, all these labels that people use, I think, are just shields to cover themselves and uh, shield themselves from the real humanity of what's going on. So my rule was not to use labels and to try to capture every human being that was involved in the struggle as personally as possible, whether they were Klansmen or SNCC people saying that Dr. King was an Uncle Tom. I wanted to know what was making them tick. And I was lucky or blessed that that approach consistently led me into kind of awe, over what was going on and i hope that i think that's at its best that's what i the, the books transmit
0: yeah no well so so i definitely think you captured the humanity and complexity of many of the leading figures in the movement, for sure. Dr. King and many others, and I'll get to some of those complexities. One of the things that stood out to me from the the writing and reading it all the way through was the incredible amount of leadership, like significant leaders and the organizations that were involved in it. So, I mean, there's a, there's kind of, um, Maybe a Sunday school or first grade version of of the civil rights movement that you know Rosa Parks had a seat and then this this charismatic person Dr King came along and he made some speeches and all of a sudden we like Barack Obama and all as well but there's <laughs> there's a whole lot there and I, I was really so happy when in reading it. And, that, and you captured the organization. So you, you started to talk about some of it there. Talk to me about the SCLC at its core and SNCC, which are two of the, the, the significant organizations involved in, in the movement.
1: Sure, first of all, you need to recognize that institutions by and large are created to do the same thing. They have a hard time doing new things. And for that reason, every organization in the civil rights era was created afresh because the existing organizations had a hard time grasping a wholly new purpose or something that was going to subject them to significantly more risk. Uh, That's why they had to create the Montgomery Improvement Association to run the bus boycott because the local organizations, whether it was the NAACP or anything else, weren't equipped to do that. SCLC and SNCC, were also new creations they they never existed until the movement literally called them into being you know uh, an institution and an organization is nothing other than whatever will make people sit together around the same table for a long long enough to be noticed <laughs> so that they use that name and and that's what happened so you know Dr King's movement was church based and so he created a movement most people don't know. It wasn't a membership organization of in- individuals. It was affiliated churches. Yeah. And uh, essentially, it was affiliated pastors, heavily concentrated among Baptists, because the structure of the Baptist church really exalts the Baptist preacher. They're like little uh, kings, and 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 they can commit their churches more than a Methodist. Jim Lawson was one of the few Methodists around there in the movement, and you know he he said the baptists were always teaching him teasing him about the fact that he had to get his bishop's permission to do anything so it was baptist preachers in a uh, in a in a movement that was deliberately trying to use the safe space that the church offered ever since the civil war the church was about the only thing black uh, communities owned publicly where they could right. where, where they could retreat and Mass meetings in churches through the course of the movement essentially substituted for all of the institutions that white culture did not allow black cultures to have. Newspapers, um, (laughs) advertising, entertainment, Congress, government. A mass meeting was all those things rolled into one, and which was why the uh, attention was so great. So that was SCLC. When the sit-ins started, uh, they were campus-based. And they were, they were college students. And they started, you know, nobody on earth predicted that the spark for the movement would be college students sitting in at lunch counters and going to jail, just as nobody predicted that the real test of the impetus of the Brown decision would be somebody refusing to get up on, uh, off the back of a bus, that those two things came along. Now, in SNCC's case, a, a contagion which is what a movement is it starts when somebody is moved quietly you know and inspired and it grows when they discover that somebody else in the face of risk shares that same reaction and the sit-ins spread like wildfire and students on di- on divided campuses realized that they were going through a lot of the same things and so they came together in Raleigh only two months two months after the movement after the sit-in started and formed an organization to coordinate student nonviolent coordinating committee. And, of course, ironically, it grew into a big organization six years later when Stokely Carmichael was chair and it proclaimed black power and everything. It was famous, and it was on front pages all over the world, and they joked that every single word in its title was wrong. They weren't students anymore. They weren't nonviolent. They didn't coordinate anything, and they weren't a committee (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, right, but that's right. how they started. And there was always tension between them and Dr. King because Dr. King had commanded the media and he got credit for things. They always wanted to know what Dr. King said and the students often went to jail and suffered a lot and but didn't get the recognition. So there was tension in that respect simply over human nature and pride that great, later grew into ideological tension.
0: Right. So, you know, I'm glad you said that in terms of uh, a snake and the work that they did and just sort of the just the humanness of wanting to get credit. But I do want to stop for a minute and pause on one of the leaders who, as someone being raised in a family where you are supposed to know things about civil rights and black history or what have you, I think I knew the name Bob Moses just as a sort of, okay, yeah, you know, I should know Bob Moses, but I was really, you know, I can't, I think you really pick him up in the, in the second book, Pillar of Fire, and then Mississippi Freedom Summer and during that time, talk to me about Bob Moses's leadership style and his contributions.
1: Well, of course, and a headline just for people who don't know anything about it. As a leader of SNCC, he represented kind of the anti-King, the grassroots, rather than the movement being personified by the exalted leader like Dr. King, who gives a sermon and tells everybody what to do. Bob Moses disappeared almost really by himself in um, the most fearful parts of of Mississippi and basically asked sharecroppers what they thought they needed, needed to be done, how he could help them. And consistently, they told him that they didn't really care as much about going to a lunch counter and sitting in or riding on a bus. What they wanted was the right to vote, because without the right to vote, they were peons. They had no protection in criminal law, economically, or any other way. But at the same time, they knew that voting was a matter of violence in Mississippi, that race relations in Mississippi were controlled by violence, not the vote which, of course, is historically true of race in America. I mean, slavery was nothing but violence. So Bob Moses took up that challenge in the face of violence and said, I am here to do whatever you need to begin to raise a challenge to acquire the right to vote. And what that meant was teaching people how to read, teaching people what the vote meant, figuring out whether somebody really meant it when they said they were ready to go up to the courthouse, and risk having their family thrown off their plantation or or getting beaten or shot, as happened simply for trying to register to vote and Moses's guiding principle was, "I'll do it with you if you're willing to do it," and that was not that's not how Dr. King got into the movement. you know Dr. Uh-huh. King resisted going to jail even up until the freedom rides. Uh, through the Freedom Rides, it was only later in his career that he subjected himself, and of course was was killed in the end. But I mean, not until Birmingham did he, uh, or Albany, did he deliberately subject himself to jail. Moses started that way, and he acquired an enormous. This is in 1960 he started, and in 1961, uh, by the 1961, when several of the people that he was taking to jail were killed, murdered in Mississippi. He really became kind of a sainted figure to the other veterans of the previous year's sit-in movement. And so there was a whole Bob Moses wing in SNCC that instead of wanting to get on another freedom ride and trying to challenge segregation was becoming field workers, disappearing into the countryside to work with people for whatever they needed to organize for the right to vote. Uh, that culminated in Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964. But Moses was, and I dearly miss him, I mean, <laughs> a, a, a wonderful figure. He, um, you know, he was a philosophy grad student at Harvard when the movement started. He was a black guy who who had Buddhist training. He was about as far away from your stereotypical black Baptist preacher as you can get. He was um, an intellectual, philosophical character. His speeches were like meditations, uh, just the opposite of, uh, you know, platform oratory like Dr. King's. But they were such a contrast that they were as mesmerizing as Dr. King. I mean, some of the people in SNCC said Moses was more eloquent than King. He was certainly more cerebral. Right. So he became kind of an alternative figure. I think it bothered him all of his life, I mean, that he and King offered such— different paths or styles of leadership toward the same cause. You know, Mm -hmm. all the people around King were saying, unite behind the leader. And Bob Moses was always saying, don't we need a lot of leaders?
0: (laughs) Right, right. Clearly. Yeah, yeah. And and, I mean, he did so much. And when you're talking about a lot of leaders, another person who stood out to me in the book who I, I have come to revere is Diane Nash. Tell me about her sort of uh, what type of leader she was in in her contributions.
1: Well, (laughs) Diane is still with us, thank goodness. Uh, She's still Mm -hmm. around and she is feisty. She will not suffer fools. You know, she's a very unusual lady. She's from Chicago and was such a beauty in her youth that she actually competed pretty far into the Miss America contest in Illinois in like 1955. Mm -hmm. and was shocked when she went to fisk she transferred from howard to fisk in 1958 for her college and was shocked by the realities of segregation i mean she was not shocked by race relations chicago you know was a divided city and always was but she was shocked by how explicit it was in uh, that at fisk if you went downtown to buy a sandwich you had to go sit on the on the steps outside to eat it you couldn't eat it in the in the restaurant and um it galled her no end. And she basically, her modus operandi, if something bothered her, was, was unlike most people who would figure out a way to move on or avoid it, how to, how, who's doing something about this? <laughs> uh, we need to fix this. And um, she ultimately found out that the only people uh, that were even pretending to do anything about it were attending these nonviolent co- classes at night taught by Jim Lawson. Which repelled her. She was a she was a, a government graduate student. She had been taught in her government classes that government was a monopoly of violence. So how could nonviolence do anything to affect the government? And Jim Lawson said, violence for government is only only when real government fails, because real government is what brings people together to cooperate, and that's basically the foundation of America. We govern by votes, and he converted her into taking risks, and um, steadily, in first in the sit-ins, you know, the Nashville students were the strongest cadre in SNCC, in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, beginning with the very first sit-ins. That's where John Lewis came from. That's where Marion Berry, James Bevel, Bernard Lafayette, an awful lot of them came out of there. And none was more influential to me historically, I believe, than Diane, because she consistently challenged, came up with ideas that expanded the concept of the movement, which I described as how do you make a common inspiration grow through sacrifice and risk and introduction, you know, shared experience. And um, she's the one that said, it's not enough that each of us and all of our little campuses are, are trying to desegregate things. If a movement in South Carolina is is under siege, people in North Carolina and Tennessee should go support them. That way, it's a southwide movement, not just isolated campus movement. And she went to jail in Rock Hill, South Carolina, when everybody thought she was crazy. You know, you've got all you can handle in Tennessee. Why are you going to South Carolina? But other people followed her. You know, then she expanded the Freedom Rides. When the first original Freedom Ride was literally bludgeoned out of existence in Birmingham, she badgered all the students in Nashville to go down and take up the ride, saying if violence can stop the Freedom Ride, then the movement is dead. They all thought she was crazy then, too, but they did. They went down, and that's what really created the Freedom Ride that made headlines in the newspapers and that got Dr. King involved. So consistently, she was also the one that badgered Dr. King, she and her husband, badgered Dr. King not to leave with his tail tucked between his legs in Birmingham, just because nobody was interested in his letter from Birmingham jail, which they weren't. Nobody cared about it. He didn't have any more people to go to jail, but Diane and Bevel said, we got plenty of teenagers who are willing to go to jail, and they're chafing at the bit. And the parents of all those teenagers rose up when they heard rumors of it and challenged Dr. King, said, you're absolutely insane. You're going to leave our children with criminal records. You promised us freedom and you failed. And now you want to leave our children with criminal records. And he did it anyway, instead of, I think they had 12 adults were all they could get on May 1st. But on May 2nd, they had 600 teenagers go to jail. And the next day, They had almost a 1,000, and that's when Bull Connor brought out the dogs and fire hoses. And instead of disgracing the movement, it really made the movement because that, to me, was a turning point when the rest of America, including white America, switched from saying somebody should do something about this to I should do something about this. What's going on there? I live in the same country where people are, 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 are sicking German shepherds on eight-year-old girls. So Diane, again, was the architect of something that expanded the movement. And then again, finally, I mean, these are just illustrations. I think it's a shame that she's not a higher-profile historical figure. Yeah, It was her idea and Bevel's idea to have the Selma movement and later the Selma march to Montgomery. Both of them were their initiatives. Diane literally wrote up the blueprint for Selma immediately after the Birmingham church bombing. Why? Because she had been heavily responsible for getting kids to march in Birmingham in the first place. And the same church out of which they marched was blasted and killed four little girls only a few months later. So she felt responsible because she had created the movement that created the backlash that killed the girls. And she said, we got to do something to answer this sacrifice. And she said, the only thing I can think of is if we if we paralyzed the state of Alabama until it gave black people the right to vote, they wouldn't be able to keep having these crimes like Emmett Till and these things that that nobody does anything about. So in all those respects, Diane was a was a profound leader. We have to remember this is a, a different era as far, you know, female leadership was was overlooked. Right. It's it's fair to say that in many respects women ran the civil rights movement until the microphone was turned on. <laughs> right. When the microphone was turned on, then the men that gave the speeches. But yeah. Diane um was coming up with a lot of the ideas and and taking a lot of the first risks.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. There's a word that you mentioned a couple of times and I have here in my notes from reading the book. And this is that back to what I was saying about it was the writing is really good. And I mean it's It's certainly a lot of detailed history, but the writing is really good. Violence. I have always thought of the civil rights movement as being nonviolent. Maybe that was a tactic of SNCC and Dr. King or what have you, but the civil rights, this era that you cover, 1954 to 1968, was filled with horrific violence. And I want to say... For me, when I finished reading the the passages regarding James Meredith and Ole Miss, mm-hmm. that I had to put it down for a minute. It was riveting because it was so, so much violence. Why is it that that when we talk about the civil rights movement, we talk about sort of individual sort of assassinations, which I don't want to. Downplay that or what have you. But when you talk about James Meredith or the Freedom Riders or in Birmingham, that's a lot of, in a lot of cases, that's state violence against, that's state violence against people who are protesting peacefully.
1: Absolutely. I think I mentioned early on, but it it, it follows more on what you just said. The roots of race relations in the United States are based solely on violence. There was no consent for slavery. Right, It was a system of coercion of, of both public and private violence. You know, the government sanctioned private violence against slaves. Why? Because slaves otherwise had no stake in the system. They were property. Uh, uh, you couldn't write a law that they were they were party to. They were governed solely by violence that violence still underlies a lot of our race relations. That's why we have all the stuff, you know, the police shootings. That's why that's why people live where they live, in, in neighborhoods mm-hmm. where they live. It was created by violence, you know, state-sanctioned redlining and everything is, is, a, is a form of violence. It's not all the same, right. but, but that's yeah. where it comes from. The reason that nonviolence was so important to the civil rights movement is that Dr. King and those people realized that the purpose of America at its best when it was founded was to move the basis of politics from monarchy. Every every king is the product of a war and their support is based on the army and violence. Diane Nash learned in school that government is a monopoly of legitimate violence. That's all it is, right? Our constitutional system Is built to run on votes. And what are votes? A vote is nothing but a piece of nonviolence. It is preposterous to people, to Putin, (laughs) and to a lot of people around the world. But there were some founding fathers who said slavery is terrible. It's going to phase out. But first, we got to figure out how to stop slaughtering each other. Protestants and Catholics have been killing each other for 300 years. And people of the same race have been slaughtering each other in politics and coups for thousands of years. And so, We only occasionally glimpse, like on January 6th, that if violence determines politics, our our democracy is ruined. The flip side of that is that our democracy is built to run on nonviolence. And that system, what the movement shows is that that system wasn't applied to race relations. Because in a pinch, white America would bring out the violence to stop the Freedom Rides or to lynch Emmett Till. Or to shoot protesters in the street. But one of the hardest things for me to do as a writer is to get people to see that nonviolence, as practiced by a Black led movement to try to resist the injustice, is more or less the same thing as people sitting down in Philadelphia and saying, How do we design a system that's gonna civilize our politics around violence, around votes? You know mm-hmm. how can we do that without it breaking into violence? We want to think of black nonviolence as something peculiar, like Gandhi for for vegetarians and <laughs> um, right and right, oddballs right. and everything. But in a real way, and it was the discipline of the movement. But it was simply saying we are going to act like America professes to act, which is that we are going to pretend to have a vote and present ourselves as sacrifices for the vote until america gives up its violence and recognizes that we should be fellow citizens and um to me what makes it patriotic now there were later on there were big arguments about you know black power versus nonviolence and and so on and so forth but early on what dr king said that really impressed me when i started getting into his speeches and reading his private papers were we couldn't have this movement if we didn't have a government that recognized on its on paper free speech and the the right to demonstrate, all of those rights are on paper granted to fellow citizens that have the vote. And they're supposed to, you know, govern a system that's mediated by votes rather than by violence. The problem is we're trying to graph that on. To uh, his history in America, where race relations are still were were originally governed by violence, and still in many instances are. Does
0: that make sense? No, that that, that totally makes sense. I mean, uh, yes, it makes a whole lot of sense. Thank you for that.
1: But, but 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 when I talk to people and I say, "What's the difference between nonviolence and a vote?" Dr. King's nonviolence. People can't get get around get around the idea that they're essentially the same thing <laughs> uh conceptually right. it, it's just a matter of application because people want to think of nonviolence as something that somebody else should do, and that uh, that's not for me, and that it's a badge of weakness.
0: Yeah, yeah. Listen, I always tell people is that you know, property court is just a way to keep people from killing each other. I mean, somebody's you know, like I mean, it's it's a way to stop neighbors from fighting each other and what have you. So I I get it. I get it. So voting and you you mentioned a few things where people live and voting and what have you. Lawrence County, Alabama, and the Black Belt of Alabama as a whole today are scenes of great environmental injustice. But you went into quite a bit of detail about Lowndes County and it being a, the site of some significant victories in the emergence of, of new leadership. Talk about first just Lowndes County and some of the leadership that was involved in, in the Lowndes County movement.
1: Wow. Well, um not one person in a million knows that Lowndes County is where the Black Panther Party started, and that it was utterly different than the image of the Black Panthers that um that is popularized in the media. The mo the first significant leader that, in my view, was really created there was Stokely Carmichael. I spent a good deal of time uh with him. He basically stayed on in Lowndes County at the at the very end of the Selma to Montgomery March at the end of March, 1965. And he stayed there for a little over a year. Nobody had no black person, even though Lowndes County was almost 70% black, no, there was no record of a black person even trying to register to vote in the 20th century. It was that feudal, that Klan dominated, that that terrifying. And Stokely went in there anyway to see if the Voting Rights Act for all of its, you know, which is supposed to guarantee the right to vote for the first time, was anything but a paper tiger. And in fact, he orchestrated the very first time most people in Lowndes County had ever voted a year later. And to do that, he created his own party. And under Alabama law uh, that were were written back when there were a lot of illiterate white people and illiterate black people, any party had to have a visual symbol for people to know which party they were voting for. And the symbol for the Democratic Party was a white rooster, with a banner that said white supremacy for the right. So they said, well, we can't have a rooster. And he asked his people in Lowndes County, these farmers, mostly farm ladies, what would be our image? And they said, get us a cat, cats chase chickens. And so he called Atlanta and asked the SNCC office to, um, give him an image of a cat that he could use for his party, the Lowndes County freedom party. And, um, they went over to Atlanta University and, and got a football program for the Clark College Panthers and traced it and sent it back. And that's that's where the Black Panthers come from. They needed they needed a symbol for the first black people who voted in America, risking their lives. I mean, the FBI was there. A lot of people thought that the first black people who voted would be killed, but they voted. And they voted in large numbers. They didn't win the first year, but the leader of that group, uh, John Hewlett, later was elected sheriff in Lowndes County because they they had such a a large popular majority that over time, enforcement of the Voting Rights Act created that black majority. But Stokely's experience in the one year where he was literally right by himself, I mean, riding a mule (laughs) out -hmm. over vast territories. To me is one of the most inspiring lessons. It's like Bob Moses going to Mississippi in 1960, except this is going into Lowndes County in, in 1965. It embittered Stokely in many respects. He had been going to jail by then for five years, and basically the next year in on the Meredith March said, I ain't going to jail no more. What do we want? Black power. And he was instantly a, a national media figure because the white media loved somebody that was threatening violence, so it became, uh, it, it basically made Dr. King in many respects a passe figure, and nonviolence mm-hmm. a kind of a has been idea pretty quickly. But it flamed out pretty quickly too. It didn't really have a stable organizing base for the long, long run. I mean, there was no there was no violent victory strategy, and the posturing only lasted so long, so that SNCC itself went out of business. So did the Black Panthers. I mean, uh, it was very short-lived. But your focus on Lowndes County, I spent a lot of time down there. One of the ladies that I met who helped show me around, Catherine Flowers, has since become a a crusader for, for environmental issues in Lowndes County. She got a MacArthur grant, I think. Catherine was a great help to me because she knew a lot of those people who had had first been called out of the woodwork by Stokely.
0: Yeah. Now Lowndes County for me is one of those places and when I see it, hear it, I get a lot of pride. But then I, you know, I actually become sort of disheartened with democracy as a whole because if this is one of the first places where we test the strength of the Voting Rights Act. Democracy actually hasn't worked for the people there. And actually, actually, hold, I, I want to go somewhere with that uh, but a little later because there's um there's a point here of with Dr. King specifically from sort of 1954 to let's say 65, of when you begin Canaan's Edge. Certainly none of it was easy, but the issues were a lot simpler. When we move into what I'm reading from Canaan's Edge, you have Stokely and Black Power rising. You have the movement going to Chicago. And you have a much different figure in Mayor Daley than, you know, Bull Connor and and some of the Southern governors, Vietnam, and a whole lot of things. Talk to me about sort of Dr. King as a leader during that phase of your trilogy in in his life?
1: Well, that's a big topic, but a vital one. So I, I welcome the question. I, I really think that it's important. Most people don't really know very much about the post Selma King or even the post I have a dream King, which was before that. Right. I um, know, right. But that last uh, for the long range of American race relations and American democracy That last picture, that last period is really instructive. There are a lot of things to study there. First of all, it was a period when Dr. King was no longer reluctant. He had been reluctant, you know, to take risks at the beginning. He had been fairly careful, that sort of thing. It began to change in Birmingham. It changed a little in Selma. But after Selma, he said, we've got the attention of the United States, but we're not uh, the American people, but we're not going to have it very long. And we need to convince them there are millions of Americans who think that the problem in race relations is purely Southern and purely ignorance. He said, we have to show them that learned people all over this country have been deeply involved In white supremacy. And we have to show them in the brief period while we're still going to have a spotlight. He went Mm -hmm. from Selma to test Boston as a possible place because he knew how racist Boston was from being a grad student within a month. He was up there. And it was humorous because all the white people in Boston said, we were with you in Selma, but they couldn't even understand why he was there. Right. But he said, you know, we have to show that. And his staff didn't want to go there. His staff wanted to, said, we got plenty of work to do in the South. Black people are just beginning to register to vote. And he said, yes, but that's old work. New work is, is to wake up America to the fact that there is the race hatred in the South is also in the North. And that's when he, he dragged his staff to Chicago and said, you know, that he saw more hatred in Chicago than he did in Mississippi. And then he dragged his staff into the anti-war movement. A lot of people said, you're gonna get attacked by everybody if you go into, you know, Roy Wilkins, everybody attacked him. The the other black civil rights leaders, the New York Times, the Washington Post. But he said, America's got to learn that the way you promote democracy is not through violence. And that's and we are kidding ourselves to think that we're promoting violence in Vietnam. I mean, democracy in Vietnam. And So he made his speech in Riverside and uh, crusaded against the war, said democracy is a system of nonviolence, it's votes, and you're not creating it in in Vietnam, and you need to understand that. And finally, I think the the one that got his, he finally got his staff on board with the anti-war movement, some of them anyway, not all of them did. One of the great things about Dr. King was that he was comfortable having very strong figures around him, who were contending for alternative courses of action. I mean, Jim Bevel and Hosea Williams hated each other. I mean, uh, Jesse Jackson was always trying to take over things. You know, there were a lot of very strong-willed people there. But he dragged all of them into the anti-war movement, and then he dragged them into the Poor People's Campaign. They wanted to do that even less. But what he said was, our country, both our democracy and our race relations, are plagued by more than just how people are tr- are treated in, in politics, they're affected by the fact that our economic system displaces people. A century ago, most people were on farms. Now they're thrown off farms. You know, earlier on, there were 3 million telephone operators. Where are they? They're gone. Um, the American economy is constantly displacing people and it displaces black people faster than anyone else. And how can we alert people to the fact that one of the first duties of a democracy is to come together and figure out how to adjust to the displacements that a competitive economy uh, generates. And these poor people need to be lifted up. And he dragged his staff into that too. So I call this, you know, we made a film about this. The only film that I've ever gotten on the screen uh, at HBO was a documentary called King in the Wilderness.
0: Oh, great film! Yeah, yeah, great. I film. I was based mm-hmm. on
1: Canaan's Edge*. I've got an Emmy in my house for that. Okay, but all the other, all the other efforts to make feature films with Jonathan Demi and Harry Belafonte and uh, goodness, um, Alex Haley wrote a movie script for *Parting the Waters* uh, before he died, and I think that was in 1991 or something. So. I've had many, many efforts trying to make feature films and never succeeded. I don't think America is still comfortable getting into the guts of a movement that was arguing about profound things. But the documentary on King in the Wilderness does go into just the question that you asked. What kind of leadership was that? And my basic answer is that it really is King becoming a prophet saying, I don't have much time left. But I want to leave behind a record of how broadly the movement should apply to create and resuscitate the American people, not to let race relation poison the functioning democracy that needs to function better and to meet these crises.
0: Yeah. So you know, when you say that the difficulty, I didn't know that the, um, the that you tried to have feature films and other sort of visual mediums to, to go along with the book. It would certainly make sense. But I look at now, one of the things that really, you know, I track or my eyeballs go towards are the hassles that librarians, especially school librarians, are getting in terms of the books on their shelves or sort of this umbrella of anti-Black history or anti-American history, to be honest with you, around anti-CRT when you see that as someone who spent 24 years on a very significant portion of our history and you see very well funded, very well organized movements to squash history, what does that mean for democracy with with the momentum that that those folks are having?
1: Well, it's a threat to democracy. There's no question about that. And it depends on, you know, what you think the overall direction is going from here I see this as a very very powerful death rattle I mean when you're trying to restrict ideas and restrict books and mobilize nothing but resentment your appeal is gonna is gonna gravitate toward violence and if that works in America you know it's it's a it's a really grave problem I mean we could what people don't realize is that how difficult it is to recover. A system of of votes. Once you lose it, I mean, if one election is overturned, who's going to have faith in the next one? And what's that going to mean? I mean, I think this is a profound threat. On 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 the other hand, I I think I tend to think that we that we've turned a, a bottom corner. To me, the politics of the last fifty years has been driven subtly but consistently by a reaction against the civil rights movement in the 1960s. That because the civil rights movement enshrined a government that said voting rights and equal citizenship are part of the American heritage, people started cussing that government and saying that government is intrusive, it's big government, it's tax-and-spend liberals, uh, it's so on and so forth. I trust my, my own gun more than I trust the vote. Nobody yeah. talked about the Second Amendment until after the Civil Rights Movement. So I think that there has been a coordinated, prolonged, corrosive movement organized around the vocabulary of, of hostility to government that whose underlying force has been uh, resentment of, of the Civil Rights Movement. On the other hand, if we realize it, the civil rights movement for black people unleashed in in ordinary daily life new freedom for all kinds of other people that wouldn't have had it. And to me, it's a tragedy that all those groups don't acknowledge their mutual independence. Women, I, I say in my speeches, if, if you're a white southerner who's grateful that your daughter can go to Princeton, you should realize that you and your daughter stand on the shoulders of Fannie Lou Hamer, because if black people hadn't raised the standards of what equal citizenship meant to apply to black people, it would have been much harder for women to say that should apply to us, too. You know, when I went to North Carolina at Chapel Hill, there were practically no girls there, It was except nursing students. It was a school for gentlemen. All that changed, but it changed because of the civil rights movement led by black people, and nobody wants to kick the women out of North Carolina or Princeton or even West Point, for God's sake. Nobody could imagine that you would have women in military academies or gays and lesbians, on and on. It's unleashed a lot of freedom. There are people who appreciate it. There are people who appreciate the fact that the same discipline and public faith that animated the Civil Rights Movement is the only thing that will save us from climate change. You have to believe in our capacity to work together and equal citizens and stuff like that. And the people on the right have been basically driven into a hole. They don't have any constructive ideas about anything because they've been cultivating this hostility for so long. They don't know how to do anything else. So I agree with you that... It could break into, into violence, and there are a lot of people doing it, and they've been doing it so, for so long, I don't even think they realize what they're doing. They probably legitimately say, I'm not motivated by uh, racial resentment. I'm motivated by my theories of government and so on and so forth. But I know darn well that it started when George Wallace said, "I have, Dr. King said, George Wallace has changed his stump speech. It is miraculous what he has done. Dr. King said George Wallace is a very inventive, dangerous politician because his stump speech now says, I have never denigrated anybody for their over their race. My only purpose has been to restore local government from tyranny by pointy headed bureaucrats and tyrannical judges. And he invented most of the vocabulary uh, of of, of the anti-government movement. And. What I'm trying to get people to realize is how the underpinnings of that were and still are racial.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, I should know the name of it. And I think it was just released. There's a book that I saw posted and it talks about George Wallace's rhetoric and how it's fueled sort of modern politics on the right and his uses of the words like liberty and freedom as sort of Really a, a counter way of saying sort of control and restraint, but using, you know, those sort of lofty goals of liberty and freedom or what have you. Yeah. Speaking of legitimacy, and I I know so you mentioned playing football, and uh, I know you followed football, I've written about football at least for a while. In light of everything that you know as well as anyone in this country about the time period between 1954 to 68 and just after brown versus board of education when we see the picture of jerry jones the dallas cowboys owner there now at north little rock and in my estimation he's kind of getting a pass or what have you what do you as someone who who knows that period what types of questions should we be asking a Jerry Jones?
1: Well, I think we should be telling Jerry Jones some things, which is that the, the governance of professional sports is not something solely for a private club. I got in a lot of trouble. In fact, my lecture business has suffered a lot because I I, I applied that to to college sports, saying that in my view, the adults who control college sports are stealing money from the athletes whose talent and sweat generates that money. Yeah. So one of the great things about going back and starting and studying the origins of race relations in the constitutional period is that those people had to figure out how things related to one another. How do you govern a corporate? You know, there were very there were only about ten corporations <laughs> in, in the United States uh, as of eighteen fifteen. You know, it's not like they existed. So we created what what they do. We created the National Football League and and and, and how it works, and the public has a stake in it, and they get away with a, a lot of oppression. Not all of it is race based. I mean, the rules for college sports, for example, were were created before there were significant numbers of black athletes in the revenue sports. People don't realize that in the year after Dr. King died, nineteen sixty nine the University of Texas, speaking of Jerry Jones, but not Jerry Jones, won the national championship with a football team that had 95 players, every single one of them white. It's hard for people to realize that how much those sports have changed. And University of Texas fans would rebel if you wanted to kick all the black players off the University of Texas now because they wouldn't have a chance. But they would be upset if you said that those players uh, deserve a better uh, the right to bargain for the value of what they earn and and that coaches deserve the right to to should represent the constituency that they're coaching so you've got a mixed bag in these sports
0: yeah yeah well i will tell you you know it's really a sore spot for me right now and uh so i am a graduate of jackson state university and while we are we live in a in, in a in a world where people can earn and go where they like to, I thought that the Deion Sanders being at Jackson State for me, certainly winning football games, is you know, that's great, but to be able to bring some of that black talent back to black colleges I thought would have been Helpful in terms of generating revenue and a whole lot of things, and I'm I'm going to stop that one there because I don't want to I don't want to lose my train of thought here as we sort of wrap up. And I want to thank you for your time so far. So we are almost, we're almost we're we're beginning to wrap up a little bit. Isabel Wilkerson has cited you as uh, she says she counts you as a mentor. What do you think of her writing and her contributions?
1: Well, first of all, she's a friend, so I'm going to be biased. I think of her as a mentor. and many. We're both from Atlanta. I see her um, when I go down there, but that hadn't been as frequently because of COVID. We just got an award together in Memphis. Uh, the, the Civil Rights uh, Museum in Memphis gave us their Freedom Award last month. So I saw her then. I think the warmth of other suns will, will be studied 100 years from now in part because it's, it's, it's a transportive uh, book. It's both personal and abstract. It's a, a wonderful blend that way. But also because it's a historical fact that she disclosed and made real something that most people had no idea it existed, that the largest migration within ever confined within one country was right here with six million black people moving. How and why they moved and what happened is still not fully understood. I'm writing now about why it is, and I, I I chide Isabel sometimes because she says they had to they had to have this migration to be free, but she herself says they weren't that free
0: <laughs> when no, they right. yeah, when they got yeah. north.
1: So I, I've been uh, confronting the question a question in my writing now: Why did an overwhelmingly rural, farm based people, when they migrated? to the north which after all has lots of farms too why did they wind up in cities all of them and the answer is because a lot of them were driven out of small towns in the north and that is not really appreciated and known so but isabel opened the door on all those questions that that had been closed off from the most sophisticated you know i never thought about it and, and so i think it was great and We talked a lot when she was writing Cast. She quotes me in one place in there about (laughs) saying that (laughs) the the great question for America is if there were a choice between democracy itself and whiteness, how many people would choose whiteness? I'd rather be white than have a democracy. And of course, that's the measure of the Trump
0: movement, I think. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say 1.7 million just voted for Herschel Walker in the runoff. He's black. Phenotypically, but they were voting for whiteness. Make no mistake about it, because Absolutely. they certainly weren't voting for policy or any of those things, uh, or, or competency or any of that. So, but I was I I agree glad with he, he
1: didn't get much of a black vote. It's embarrassing to me that he got that vote because I'm, I'm a native Georgian. Yeah, it, it's really awful that that happened. But he didn't win. He didn't get a substantial black vote, which a cynical Republican calculation had him getting all the white votes and enough black votes to win. And thank God it didn't work.
0: Yeah, we dodged a bullet there. But I will tell you, between your the, 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 the trilogy and warmth of other sons, those are my sort of go-to recommendations for people to understand. And I think warmth for me personally, because my parents were part of that migration from Alabama to Chicago. And ironically, I'm back here. Well, I'm in the South now in Atlanta, so it's kind of a reverse thing. But I will also add that just recently in doing this podcast, um, I've come across the work of Jim Lowen and about sundown towns, you know, for there's a friend of mine who's a professor that's at Jackson State who's taking up his uh, his his the textbook that he wrote Mississippi Conflict and Change. He's rewriting that. And so when I interviewed him for the podcast, I had to study uh Dr. Lowen's work and he he was quite impressed. Well, he
1: certainly he certainly began to address that question of what happened to all these people in the migration and 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 why didn't they stay in small towns.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so 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 listen, Mr. Branch, Mr. Taylor Branch, I so appreciate your time. And I urge everyone to to go out and get these books and just take the time with it. I like I said, I read through them once, and then I read warmth right after that, and then I re-listened to yours on tape, and then read cast. I've kind of, I'm a I'm a reader, so I read a lot, but I I think this is so worth it. The name of our podcast is the Parlay in All Blue, and Parlay being the conversation, All Blue is. Sort of my frustration, I, I I think in my mind I'm either John Coltrane or Sonny Rollins, and so the all blue comes from there. And we end with two questions: one, sort of just you know your take on on life, and one lighter about music. And we'll get to it now. So, what does it mean to live well?
1: To me, living well means to feel that what you're trying to do matters and would matter as if God is real, Wh- whether or not you believe in God, that we're not just pieces of meat, that there, there, there's there's something between us that, that can be uplifted and that can really matter beyond uh, just our own pleasures. So I get a lot of that through music, by the way. Uh, I don't know if your other question is about music, but
0: No, yeah, no, go for it. What, like, so what, through what music?
1: Well, music is the language of pure emotion and we're emotional creatures and music expresses that. I mean, the civil rights movement ran on music. It substituted, um, um, you know, and most of the original American music has been black music because that expression uh, breaks out of every restriction that people face. I was just asked, Yesterday by a, a, an author writing a book about Dr. King and music. What kind of music did he like? He liked every kind of music. He he sang with Mah- Mahalia Jackson. He listened to opera. Duke Ellington wrote stuff uh, about and with and for him. Yes. You know, they sang all the time uh, in their in their meetings. He sang with Joan Baez. He sang with Bayard Rustin, who toured with Josh White. I mean, it's all around But more significantly to me, Dr. King's whole preaching style is musical. It's riffs like, you know, and and those preachers would sit around and jam with each other like musicians preaching each other's funerals, you know, teasing each other and stuff. So I think there's music in that. And of course, when I was a kid, I mentioned when we first started that there were a lot of things that were happening that forced me against my will, to wonder what was going on in this black culture that was scaring everybody in these demonstrations. And one of the things that, that came out of that was, why are all my friends who are hostile to black people, at least rhetorically, we don't see them very much, the very ones that will sneak out and go hear Ray Charles at Herndon <laughs> Stadium in Atlanta, or, uh-huh. or, or go down to the Royal Peacock and listen to Jackie Wilson because crossover black music was the music of our youth. I mean, Johnny Mathis was about as white as we got, Right, if you were going to court your girlfriend. So why was it that we had an emotional tie to this music without any social interaction? We didn't know where it was coming from or anything, but that music spoke profoundly to us. I I sneaked out myself to go hear Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. Really? Down at the Dinkler when I was like 15. No, 14. So, music has a power across cultural divides, like inspiration and everything. And we, you know, on the one hand, we have to recognize how powerful the hostile forces are. And on the other hand, we have to marshal every emotional and spiritual resource we have to make things better.
0: Yeah, that that is that is so awesome, and uh, thank you for that. And I have to tell you that there was something a presentation that I was working on for corporate work around the time that Aretha Franklin passed, and it was about Aretha's life. And there I discovered Dr. King there in the living room with C. L. Franklin and James Cleveland and Aretha Franklin right there, and then that King Cole would be a visitor, so. Uh, music is 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 definitely important to me and important to the show and I think important to the soul. So Taylor, I can't thank you enough. Your work is essential and you are a national treasure as a writer. and every minute of your time has been uh, has been valuable and and probably something that is a bucket list for for me to be able to talk to you. So I appreciate you. Coming on to our show.
1: Well, I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed talking with you. I've learned some stuff, and I, I hope you'll send me your contact information in Atlanta. Um, you know, my mom still lives; she's ni- almost ninety-nine, and she lives in the house I grew up in, so I come visit. her.
0: All right, yeah, no. I listen. I will definitely send you my contact information, and I would love to have coffee or anything with you, and listen to some to listen to some good music. So maybe I we can
1: get together with Isabel.
0: I would. Oh, my God. I, I cannot tell you now. Listen, and, and I'm sitting here talking to Taylor Branch, but I have to tell you, because warmth of the sons and then cast, they are so personal to me that to, to me and my daughter went to Howard, which is where Isabel went. So, yeah. I, I mean, you know, that would be that would be great. Anyway, I'm I'm a I'm a reader nerd fan and all of that. So it's 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 all good.
1: Well, thank you very much. And I hope we meet again soon. Take care.
0: Yes, thank you. All right. For everyone else, hang on. And I'm going to sign off. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite follow us or subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.